we've got to be able to understand the biology of the cancer. Did we actually measure the exposure, the diet, the physical activity, the obesity at the right time point? No point measuring it six weeks before you get diagnosed. Smoking, dead easy, right? People are addicted. We sell them the agent in predefined vessels to deliver um, 20 a day. And I say, now, what did you eat last year? Right? You can't tell me all well, I had 20 French fries a day for 365 days. No, you vary up all your physical activity. So that's all part of the complexity. We've got to get down to the simplicity of measuring to predict your risk of cancer or dementia or whatever, right? You're listening to Masterminds, where we sit down with experts in science and medicine to talk about everything from the research of today to the innovation of tomorrow. This is Will, and in this episode of Masterminds, we sit down with Dr. Graham Kolditz, epidemiologist and public health expert. Dr. Kolditz is the Associate Director for Prevention and Control at Seitman Cancer Center and Chief of the Division of Public Health Sciences in the Department of Surgery at Washington University School of Medicine. He is also an adjunct professor of epidemiology at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Kolditz is an internationally recognized leader and researcher in cancer and chronic disease prevention and is currently the fourth highest cited researcher in the world with an H-index of 299. Throughout this episode, you will hear about Dr. Kolditz's background coming from Australia to the U.S., cancer epidemiology and prevention, and specific risk factors for cancer. Before we get into the interview, let's briefly talk about the history of cancer, one of my favorite subjects. This disease has afflicted humans for thousands of years, with the earliest evidence of cancer being found on the fossilized bones of mummies from ancient Egypt. Little was known about this abnormal tissue growth until the Greek physician Hippocrates coined the term carcinoma, the Greek word for crab, to describe the ulcer-forming masses that had finger-like projections through tissue, looking much like the common crustacean. Galen, Hippocrates' successor, contributed to the classification of cancerous and non-cancerous tumors, from the most benign to the most malignant. In fact, Galen's theory of four humors to describe illness in the human body attributed an excess of black bile to the cause of cancer, signifying the central importance of cancer in the study of medicine early on. From then on, many more physicians and scientists have made discoveries that would lay the foundation for cancer research and contribute to our overall understanding of human health and biology. Dr. Graham Kolditz has certainly earned his own place in the history of cancer. His discoveries and some of the other discoveries that influenced him will be discussed later on in the episode. First, let's hear about how Dr. Kolditz became interested in studying medicine. I grew up, my dad was a primary care provider in Sydney. Out of three other siblings, I was the one in four who wanted to go to med school. My dad had hearing loss. We have an autosomal dominant um, midlife onset hearing loss, and uh, he opted to move out of primary care and go work for the VA with a desk job. That would mean he could function without hearing, if you will. And long story short, 
that led to me ultimately applying to go to the University of Queensland for med school because that had been in Queensland in the Air Force at the end of the Second World War. I got into med school in Brisbane. I got interested in medical education and then more and more in prevention. And so I spent a lot of my time in med school in student politics and uh, issues around access to care, rural primary care. So a lot of this stuff that in a way set up my trajectory to be focused on prevention that sort of still is the heart of what I'm doing to this day. But I would never have predicted that this would be the place I'd end up, right? As a medical student, Dr. Kolditz was encouraged by his experiences to pursue cancer research and more specifically how to prevent cancer and other chronic diseases. So a couple of things happened along the way. One, sort of you learn about what tobacco's doing and you think about prevention. And actually with this rural focus, there was a, a thought that if you're in a country town, maybe you could get the whole town to lead a healthier lifestyle. If you're in a city, if people don't like the message you're giving them, they can nick off down the street and see someone else, right? So that was one part of the reality. While I was in med school, my older brother's wife died of breast cancer. And, um, so that was pretty staggering. And I obviously did rotations in oncology and so on as a student as part of internal medicine. And um, you sort of see oncology and then you do a rotation through a coronary care unit and you think everyone here has been smoking and lung cancer, everyone's been we're not focused enough on actually preventing and helping people prevent this. So that somehow caught me. After finishing medical school in Australia, Dr. Kolditz's interest in public health led him to pursue further education in the United States, ultimately obtaining his doctorate in public health at Harvard University. In Boston, he noticed fundamental differences in the approach to medical education taken by the United States and Australia. Sort of Australia was, if you will, hyper local back in the 70s. Like my, my med school class had, you know, 10 students who'd probably all been to the same high school and gone through stuff together. And you get to Harvard School of Public Health and there's one person in my class who actually grew up in Boston and everyone else is from all over the world. And it was like, wow, that's different the Australian system, really a British system heritage gives a more hands-on experience for longer than the, the US system, which, yeah, you can get all that in year three. Year three, it's pretty quick, a three-week rotation or a six-week rotation, and that's it for life. Whereas we do sort of two rotations in, as students, and then you've got this internship, hands-on experience in these different disciplines that come together when you specialize. In addition to medical training, the two countries' approaches to public health are quite different, as seen by the responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. This came to the spotlight with the recent controversy during the Australian Open, when tennis player Novak Djokovic's visa was cancelled by the Australian government due to his unvaccinated status. And with Mishka being a big tennis fanatic, she jumped at the chance to ask Dr. Kolditz about the issue. 
can you speak a little bit to um, you know how public health is treated in Australia and valued in the government and also in um, society? Historically, the Australian system has had more of a, if you will, a public health approach. COVID really was an extreme case, right? So, well, Australia just became a big cruise ship. It pulled up the gangplank. No one was allowed on. No one was allowed off. And that was a commitment that people signed up for. And it wasn't like Australians got mad. They all liked to travel, but they withstood that. Melbourne, the AO's there. You've got the city that's had the most lockdown days of any city in the world. And this foreign guys trying to come and give the country the middle finger, I'm not going to be vaccinated. So there was media coverage you've seen, but a sense of community that is really consistent with the, if you will, a public health approach. They target $20 a pack for cigarette tax because as a society, they've bought on that tobacco's not something we condone. We're in Missouri, which thinks taxing tobacco's interfering with God's will. So we've got the lowest tobacco tax in the United States, right? So real contrast in a societal perspective versus the complete individualistic structure, if you like, of the U.S. Dr. Kolditz's interest in public health led him to come to WashU, where he was recruited to the position of Associate Director for Prevention and Control at Siteman Cancer Center. There was the potential to build a prevention and control program that was going to impact more than just people coming to Siteman, but focused on the, the city and county where we have clear disparities. Think of rural, which again, Siteman only cancer center, NIH, NCI designated in a long, long drive, right? So could we think about developing research and prevention programs for rural and um, remote parts of the state, including Southern Illinois? And so that vision that he crafted certainly appealed to me. And so I came to take on that challenge and literally build a program from scratch. When people usually talk about epidemiology, you think of communicable diseases like COVID or like the flu, or, but uh, your field of expertise with uh, cancer epidemiology, it's not exactly something that can spread person to person, unless you're talking about like HPV and other viruses. Can you talk about what cancer epidemiology is and what moves you've made once you got to WashU to help with that? Sure. And uh, yeah, the construct of epidemiology may be starting with infectious diseases and really through Framingham Heart Study moving to defining risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And then it's like, well, we can think about preventing cancer too, can't we? The methods of study design, studying populations and identifying modifiable risk factors that we can then work to change to reduce cancer. That's really the trajectory we've been on, right? 
there are preventable components for cancer other than smoking. Everyone sort of said, well, smoking causes lung cancer, so we know that, but what else can you do? Um, and so we've actually worked to summarize the evidence that the majority of cancer is preventable and ultimately turn that into web tools that the public can access to both increase understanding and identify lifestyle modifiable factors that they can adopt to reduce their risk of cancer. The same things can apply in physical activity, diet, smoking, weight. And while we might think they're all individual choices, we know that taxation impacts smoking and success of quitting can impact alcohol consumption. So there are societal forces as well as individual choices in all of this. If we subsidize food industry to produce unhealthy foods, then we can't blame people for eating unhealthy foods if the society's made that sort of the default go-to. And the structures, the way we design our cities and towns impacts whether it's safe to walk, whether it's safe space, be physically active. So trying to remember that we've got the individual and the societal piece, that's again one of the bigger challenges in communicating this, that it's not all your fault. I read in, a, in the WashU School of Medicine magazine that uh, they featured this big statistic on an article about you that said nearly 60% of all cancers are preventable, which seems amazing because, you know, you think of it as a genetic disease, not something you have much control over, but 60% is a majority of those cancers. So can you discuss uh, which cancers are and are not preventable and why and what the main controllable factors are in reducing your risk? Sure, and that's, that's really right back at what motivated a lot of this communication. But we had colleagues who worked in bench science in cancer work who equally were, really, it's preventable. Um, it's not just fam family history is the one factor, right? And it's like, actually, there's this range. And so smoking um, actually you know, 15 or more cancers actually caused by smoking. We know about head and neck and lung and liver and kidney and colon and rectum and so on down a, a list of many cancers. And over the last 25 years, the evidence has become equally convincing that overweight and obesity adult weight gain messes up your metabolism your hormones and yes that relates to postmenopausal breast cancer and colon cancer and the lymphomas myeloma kidney cancer a whole range of cancers again where there's and maybe harder to conceptualize than smoking because we know you know smoking you've got a cigarette with a defined dose of toxins every time you smoke a cigarette and obesity is this harder to understand what's causing it. But when you look across the many, many um, prospective studies, look at weight gain compared to stable weight, the risk goes up. Weight gain, again, maybe causing 20% or more of cancer. Physical activity, uh, strong evidence that more active lower risk of colon cancer, lower risk of breast cancer, 
key occupational types of exposures that OSHA has regulated all the major things, asbestos and so on, but they add up another 5% for things like melanoma. We know sunburns and sun exposure, which again is actually something we can avoid with appropriate clothing and hats and all. Again, highly uh, preventable. So when you add those up, you get to over 50%. To me, the good news from the what does this mean side, the healthy diet, physical activity, avoiding weight gain, that translates also over to diabetes, heart disease and stroke. So we're not saying you've got to eat one sort of breakfast for your heart and lunch for your diabetes and uh, dinner for cancer. It's the same set of healthy choices will multiply across all those chronic diseases. Even though we know how important environmental factors are to cancer prevention, analyzing how different components contribute to cancer risk is a difficult task that involves lots of statistics and data. So with the preventable cancers, what are what goes into the epidemiological studies to determine uh, the association between those variables and getting the disease? Yeah, nice sort of question that pull back insight right? Because it's not just can we measure the risk factor and relate it to the cancer. We've got to be able to understand the biology of the cancer. Did we actually measure the exposure, the diet, the physical activity, the obesity at the right time point? No point measuring it six weeks before you get diagnosed. It can't impact development of cancer in six weeks, right? So understanding that biologic evolution of the cancer, understanding, if you will, the cellular level, what is it, what's the pathway between obesity and cancer? Is it hormonal? What what are the drivers that could be modified? So it's the biology, time course, and actual measurement of factors, right? Smoking, dead easy, right? People are addicted. We sell them the agent in predefined vessels to deliver um, 20 a day. And I say, now, what did you eat last year? Right, you can't tell me. Well, I had 20 French fries a day for 365 days. No, you vary up all your physical activity. You ran a marathon, but the day after you didn't run another one, right? It's massive variation. So working out whether we can measure that or is there a blood marker that's a better long-term measure? So your red blood cells don't turn over daily, right? So if we can find a marker inside a red blood cell, that'll reflect a longer time period than what you ate yesterday or a water-soluble vitamin that you'll pee out in the next 12 hours. So there's understanding what we can measure, which 
component of your body if we're taking a sample. Your toenails turn over at a different rate from your hair and your skin. So can they give you a nine month measure of what you were eating by clipping your toenails and sending them off for another? So that's all part of the complexity. We've got to get down to the simplicity of measuring and then the whole of the analysis to predict your risk of cancer or dementia or uh, whatever, right? But we've got this explosion from images and metabolomics and the lifestyle stuff. How do you put all that together to actually get to a precision, personalized um, estimate of your risk in the next 20 years? The overall goal of cancer prevention is to fight cancer before it occurs or becomes a significant threat. However, not all cancers are preventable through lifestyle changes. For some cancers, the risk factors are not well known yet. Even as we begin to focus more on cancer prevention, there will always be a need for better cancer treatments. Uh, what are some of the types of cancers that aren't exactly preventable, where treatment is the only option for curing them? So if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have said, well, lymphoma and myeloma diseases of the white blood cells, boom, no risk factor. Well, HIV was a risk factor for lymphoma. And now we have obesity on the list for both of those. So that's not very helpful, not a big list. Brain cancers, we don't have a good set of risk factors there. Um, childhood cancers, pancreas, we actually see obesity, but not a lot of other risk factors. So that one's still out there. Um, liver, chronic infection, alcohol, and now obesity. So there's some preventable, but it's not like lung where 90% can be prevented. But we do still need the treatment options. Uh, hard to sort of say we can prevent all of lung cancer, so we've solved it. Yeah, but people still smoke and people have occupations and we have air pollution, so there's still going to be some lung cancer, even in the healthiest population we can find. So we need treatments there too. Dr. Kolditz's interest in public health and the prevention of cancer led him to develop a cancer risk assessment tool called the Harvard Cancer Risk Index. This popular health risk assessment tool has since taken a more comprehensive form that can evaluate an individual's risk for 12 different cancers, as well as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and osteoporosis. The site is currently housed in the Siteman Cancer Center at Washington University in St. Louis and has enabled people to investigate and manage their own risk for these chronic diseases. So next, can you discuss some of the most important milestones in cancer prevention? Like I know you mentioned uh, smoking and it's linked to lung cancer, which I believe was first published at WashU. And I know in uh, in Sid McCurgy's book, Emperor of All Maladies, he discussed how the first chemical carcinogen was discovered in uh, chimney sweeps in London, I think, uh, where the, it was linked to testicular cancer. Yeah, and those are, you know, classic examples that I will still use to teach. And the chimney sweep testicular cancer 
um, or actually skin cancer on the scrotum from the TARS. That's a nice example of preventable because you stop chimney sweeps, sweeping chimneys by sending the little guys up and use brooms and other approaches and you suddenly don't have this cancer. So you can do an intervention and the cancer goes away. The smoking lung, that Winder and Graham here in the 1950s, Winder was a medical student, did chart review and reported out in JAMA, the smoking and lung cancer. And then in England, Doll and Bradford Hill and others did a prospective study. And that set the standard Framingham Heart, a prospective study of blood cholesterol and heart disease reported out for the first time out of Framingham. And we had then had the Nurses' Health Study, 121,000 women set up in um, the 1970s, literally to look at whether uh, oral contraceptives were changing the risk of breast cancer. And I came in after it had started, but we could ask questions about oral contraceptives and ovarian cancer, really clear protective effect of oral contraceptives reducing risk of ovarian cancer because if the ovary is not ovulating, there's not cell proliferation and damage accumulation and cancer risk. Then, if you will, in the early 80s, aspirin appeared as potential to lower risk of colon cancer and a lot of prospective studies and aspirin and polyps and mechanisms and that's been clearly sustained as another example. And then I did work on hormones and breast cancer, uh, postmenopausal estrogen plus progestin and showed that uh, increase in risk, longer duration, greater increase in risk. Um, so these all sound pretty easy to measure, right? For breast cancer, um, some of the physiology, the breast sort of starts one phase of development at the onset of first menstrual period in women. So from birth to say 12 on average, there's really not much growth. Then there's growth. And then unlike any other organ, with the first pregnancy, the breast actually gets ready to produce milk and cells go through another development. Animal models show that there's actually a change in the cell cycle that doesn't reverse after the pregnancy. And so then you think, well, can I measure exposures in girls before age 12, young adult women from 12 to whenever they may or may not have a first baby. And if you ask them at 60, are they gonna remember what they ate at age five? If you ask them at age five, are we gonna be around when they get to 60 to get breast cancer? So you've got these um, real interesting dynamic challenges of study design and data. And that actually opens up prostate cancer. Black men have higher incidence and mortality of prostate cancer at 40 and 45 than white men. Well, they didn't do something at 39 that got them higher risk at 40. It's got to have been back in childhood, adolescence to get cancer at 30 or 35. How do you study that? We've got to keep thinking, where are the best examples that we can 
find to actually test this hypothesis that sustained weight loss can lower risk. So each of those adds pieces to a jigsaw puzzle. So they're the ones I highlighted. Easy to measure, occupational exposures, unarguable. The lifestyle, smoking, again, measured for you, addictive, easy, physical activity, diet. Those are harder, but filling in the jigsaw puzzle over time. Many of Dr. Kolditz's studies rely on self-reported information. However, the data collected through self-reports have challenges with maintaining reliability. For example, when questioning patients about their health, they are more likely to have accurate answers about their family health history than their weekly exercise levels. To overcome this issue, Dr. Kolditz suggests doing independent measures to validate the self-reports. Giving patients a pedometer or measuring their blood sugar levels throughout the day will reveal if their self-reported exercise durations are truthful. These independent measures are used to validate the self-report and overall help people lower their risk of disease. So as you mentioned, in addition to uh, exercise, that obesity is a big risk factor. And I know you are one of the leaders at the Transdisciplinary Research on Energetics and Cancer Center at WashU. you describe, because the connect between obesity and cancer isn't as clear as other things like smoking, obviously you breathe that stuff into your lungs. Uh, Can you describe that link? We do have good evidence that insulin and insulin pathways can drive colon cancer and explain the obesity colon cancer path. Sometimes it's humans, sometimes it's animal models. People are actually now doing equivalent of bariatric surgery on uh, animal models of cancer to show that reducing weight in obese mice can lower their risk of cancer when you've sort of artificially caused it with a carcinogen. So those pieces come together and If we pull all the epidemiologic data and if there are weight loss trials, we can bring them in. Now can we reconcile the epidemiology in humans? It's again, interesting that it's not the same pathway for all the cancers, but the synthesis of bench and human trials and whole populations is ultimately what makes it conclusive. As Dr. Kolditz explained, the connection between obesity and cancer risk is not the same for all types of cancer. However, there is a general biological mechanism that can explain why there is an increased risk of cancer in patients with obesity. Excess fat cells can cause certain hormone and growth factor levels to rise and cause chronic inflammation, causing more cell death and growth of new tissue. When the amount of cell divisions increases, there is a greater chance that random genetic mutations will occur during replication and give rise to oncogenic phenotypes. Enough of these mutations in the right genes can result in clumps of cells that are unrestricted in their ability to multiply and stay in the same place, aka cancer. Another commonly talked about risk factor is diet. Some foods are unknowingly linked to cancer, while others are more talked about, like smoked meats. I'm sorry to my fellow St. Louis barbecue lovers, maybe fast forward a couple minutes in the episode if you don't want the smoked brisket from salt and smoke to be less appetizing. The meat and the carcinogens we create when we cook meat definitely has been pulled apart 
with all those approaches I just described from bench science and measures of toxins and human populations. The piece of diet, salt and so forth that may have contributed years ago to stomach cancer, whether it was the salt or the curing of foods when you think we didn't have refrigeration, if that was possible, right? But yes, it was possible. We wouldn't be here today if people couldn't live without refrigeration. And stomach cancer was a leading cancer 150 years ago. Hard to find today, right? Because we've changed the food storage and curing and so on. The other piece that is maybe harder to wrap our minds around, the super, what I'll call postmodern food, the white flour, no fiber, super refined. That lack of fiber and whole grains clearly comes through as increasing risk of colon cancer, digestive cancers, and also your heart disease and so on the um, supply of canola oil didn't really exist. It was a lubricant for airplanes in the Second World War. It was called rapeseed and you couldn't market rapeseed, so they renamed it canola. And there's a reasonable body of evidence that that oil or the subtypes of oil in there may in fact increase risk of prostate cancer. And equally trans fat, because it's solid at room temperature, made it easier easy to move around from McDonald's and other fast food places. Well, that's actually been banned from the food supply in Canada and the US, and that was largely driving cardiovascular risk. Um, but there was a lot of interest. Was that also related to some cancers? If it is, it's not as clear a signal as the heart attack signal and heart attack was enough for Bloomberg and the FDA and others to get trans fat out of our food supply. Other bits, the suggestion and growing evidence that sort of colored fruits and vegetables, probably more on the vegetable side, contain a set of antioxidants that probably are lowering risk of um, breast cancer, triple negative. If we're going to find a risk factor, lack of those may come through. Again, as we've moved away from how our grandparents lived to a more sort of fast food, we've lost some of the whole foods to now the super refined things and maybe there are still components in the fruits and vegetables that are protective against breast cancer and colon cancer. So you mentioned like some of the bans on uh, trans fat. Do you think that there are, you know, other really stark dietary changes that other than making people, the general public aware that they should maybe make shifts in their diet that other institutions or agencies can take charge of and eliminate? It's a super question and public health, you know, has struggled with the tension. You know, we see taxation works for reducing cigarette consumption and it really helps people who are trying to quit if the cost of your next pack has gone up, then you may stay quit. Taxing your hamburger an extra five cents, you can get overweight never eating a hamburger, right? So it's the directness of a tobacco tax for the cancers that 
cigarette smoking causes doesn't translate to um, if we just did a taxation intervention. And that's where the removing trans fat was justified from the uh, heart disease evidence and range of ways that was put together over time. Australia's removed sales tax from sunscreen, saying if sunscreen's going to prevent you from getting skin cancer, why on earth are we taxing you? That doesn't make sense. The government should be encouraging you to prevent cancer so we don't have to treat it when you get government-sponsored health insurance in old age. You know, I said earlier, your design of your towns and cities and safe physical activity. And there's a cancer link, but it's hard to say if we just had more recreation space in our towns, we'd suddenly have everyone using it and lower diabetes, heart disease, stroke and cancer. It all makes sense, but a time lapse and that's where the taxation may be trying to more directly impact um, behavior and I think we probably have places that you and I don't even know that we're subsidizing the manufacturer or some part of the food supply. So some of it is just a lack of even awareness where to get a general public support because just having pointy-headed academic public health leaders saying we should tax something or change the subsidy for salt in food, that, that doesn't go over well, right? So what would you say is the role of the primary care physician in not only the treatment of disease, but in the prevention of these diseases? Well, I think primary care is still fundamental for prevention, whether it's vaccination uh, in childhood and adolescence, or now in adults for COVID and older adults historically for um, flu vaccines, screening, not just for cancer, but blood pressure, lipids. If you never see a primary care doc, how are you going to find out if your blood pressure's up and you're at risk of stroke and attack? Okay, you've heard you should get a colon screening because you're turning 50. Um, you may have missed the fact you've got family history and should have started 10 years ago. Um, whatever the starting age is now, and that's a moving target. So some of this if you will, translating what might be guidelines out there to help you come to, yeah, I'd better get screened. I should be doing something about my weight so my blood pressure comes down, um, whatever. Without that contact with primary care, a lot is up for grabs or never happens, right? And our sense is that communities who don't have access to and use a regular primary care uh, system are later to get their cancers diagnosed, worse outcomes. And there've been studies for heart disease and cancer really showing that the, if you will, the Kaiser sort of system that links primary care to subsequent specialty care has better outcomes in California than uninsured or we'll call it randomly insured people. And it's not that only healthy people sign up for Kaiser because cancer doesn't always pick um, 
only healthy people or only unhealthy people. And so there's different ways, again, of looking at this, but definite role in the access, the prevention. And I think, you know, prevention is not just vaccines and screening, but advice on weight and diet and um, physical activity to lower your risk of heart disease. I think there is good evidence that primary care has a role there. We've known smoking cessations more effective when a primary care doc recommends it and supports that with uh, nicotine replacement. That evidence is there from clinical trials, randomized trials 50 years ago. So if someone still doesn't have access, they're missing that teachable moment of the visit with the primary care doc that can help set the compass straight to lower risk of this whole range of chronic diseases, yeah. On that note, I think it's a good point to wrap up the interview. I, I could talk about cancer prevention for hours longer, but I think we need to cut it so that our podcast is a manageable length for people to listen to. But uh, uh, I'd like to end with a question that we ask all of our guests, which is, what advice do you have for future doctors and scientists, and in your case, public health officials? You've got to be prepared to take on new challenges, right? HIV, people had never been trained in HIV had to suddenly take on HIV when that became a new problem. Um, you could say the same with COVID, that we all had to retool for the pandemic of COVID. And if we decided in med school we were only going to focus on um, one condition, that wouldn't be optimal. So an element of flexibility, but keeping the sort of long-term population benefit as the driving goal to me is a huge key to success and continuing to answer the, the problems that are most pressing for sort of the public society that we're living with and in pretty fundamental to how we work. A big thank you to Dr. Graham Kolditz for taking the time to talk to us about cancer prevention and treatment. The scientific and medical community have come a long way in understanding and treating cancer. Yet, we still have so much more to discover. Talking to Dr. Kolditz has made me even more optimistic about the future of cancer research and where I will find myself in the field. He is really inspiring and passionate about helping people improve their health and prolong the quality of their lives, a characteristic I hope all future physicians and scientists can learn from and take forward in their budding careers. This podcast would not be what it is without our Masterminds team. A huge thanks to our research team, Vikram Simambatla and Noah Nadav Slocum, our content team, Maya Emerson and Andrew Chen, and our production lead, Ajay Gudapudi. If you like the Masterminds podcast, you can support us by following us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Masterminds Pod. Also, if you're interested in joining the team on our journey to pick the brains of all the wonderful faculty here at WashU, reach out to us on any of our social media accounts. Thank you for your support, and we'll see you next time.